Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there folks, Oliver here. This week I'm releasing a recent conversation that I did with Doug Gordon from the War on Cars podcast. The podcast is philosophically aligned with us, and I enjoy listening to what they do. This was a fun conversation despite the different angles that we come from in the urban transport space. In the meantime, a bit of exciting news in the shared micromobility world. Paris finally released the names of the operators who will be operating there more permanently. And there are three, Lime, Tia and Dot. We've interviewed the first two on this podcast and have an interview lined up with the third, so stay tuned for that. Each company will get 5,000 scooters in the city as matching it with charging and parking depots and more infrastructure. It's exciting to see this space maturing significantly. In New York, Revel, who we mentioned in this podcast, has had to pull service off the street in New York after the death of one of its riders. This comes on the back of warnings from the company in the last couple of weeks that it would be stricter on the folks who are riding dangerously. These sort of teething problems are usual in the adoption of any new technology. And hopefully New York and Revel will be able to find a way to provide this clearly very useful and valuable service going forward as other cities around the world have. Finally, next week on Tuesday, I will be hosting a webinar with the team from Helium talking about their low-power, low-cost, but long-range wireless network for data connections to micromobility. This may sound boring, but believe me, it is absolutely not. It's about how we keep micromobility connected reliably and cheaply, as it's one of the biggest issues there is to solve. I think Helium has one of the most exciting projects out there in terms of what they're trying to do with a global network. And I think micromobility will be right on the cutting edge of what's going to be possible there. This will be relevant to investors, hardware people and operators interested in what the future will look like. Come and join us on Tuesday, the 4th of August at 4pm Eastern, 1pm Pacific time. Sign up at micromobility.io. And with that, here's Doug. Good morning. All right. Well, look, Doug, I think probably the easiest way to do this is um, we're going to have a mixture of the audience. Not everybody will have heard either of our podcasts. So maybe what we could do is kick off and do a bit of an introduction as to who we are and what we do. That That's a great idea. So, uh, yeah, I'm Doug Gordon. I'm the co-host, one of three hosts of a podcast called The War on Cars. We are 46 episodes in and, uh, you know, we cover everything from... Well, basically, we talk about automobile dominance and the way that cities have been sort of ruined by cars, uh, whether that's socially, environmentally, politically, and we focus on the people, places, and things that are trying to undo that and reverse some of that damage. Awesome. Yeah. Um, nice. And I'm uh, Oliver Bruce. I'm the co-host, uh, along with Horace Didu, of uh, the Micromobility Podcast. Um, Horace is a specialist in disruptive innovation, um, having studied under Clayton Christensen. And uh, his thesis is that micromobility, electric utility vehicles, lightweight utility vehicles that are sort of sub thousand pounds or 500 kgs are a kind of fundamental new class of vehicle. Um, and so there's e-bikes and e-scooters, but everything up to sort of pod motorbikes etc um and that they are they are um they meet all the criteria for disruptive innovation and that they are going to become a a kind of a a force for 
a real force to be reckoned with in, in terms of urban transport. And so in our podcast, um, which we now have about 80 uh, episodes of, uh, we interview uh, people who are in that industry, uh, e-bikes and scooters and um, uh, all the way up to that, that sort of pod size uh, vehicle. And we talked about the, we talk about the theory of disruption and why, um, you know, how does that apply to the urban context, um, which obviously gets us into the same sort of questions that uh, you do, Doug, yeah. which is, you know, how do we think about road space allocation and how do we think about cars and why are cars good and why are they bad? It's funny, so, my, my co-host Aaron Napristek calls a lot of what you guys are doing and focusing on, he likens it to um, when the dinosaurs went extinct and all of these little, <laughs> and all of these little furry mammal, mammals were running around and those were the things that evolved into sort of what we have today. Um, and so he, he can, tends to compare e-bikes and scooters and electric skateboards and all of these little things rolling around, the one-wheeled vehicles, to the furry little mammals that survived the you know, the meteor crash or whatever killed the dinosaurs. You know, the, the evolutionary um, framing, I think, is really useful. We, one of the, um, you know, obviously Horace comes out, he, he was in the computing industry and mobile industry before this, and um, uh, uh, but he, he was doing some work, but kind of pr- how he got into doing micromobility was he was looking at adoption curves and he was looking at um, sort of about 140 different technologies and looking at how they got adopted by consumers. And um, while he was there, he was also looking at how does Apple, what does it, what does it logically kind of like start to go into? And and the thesis around um, as computers get smaller, they end up sort of going into smaller and smaller spaces, which is why you see sort of Apple go from making big computers to making smaller computers like the iPhone into making things that are right on your wrist. Um, and that the same will be the tr- true with the vehicles and that you, the end up kind of smaller and smaller and smaller and that those are the ones that evolve the fastest. Um, so yeah, anyway, I'm sure we'll get into that um, as, a, as a sort of thesis at some yeah, point. Yeah, for sure. Um, cool. Well, look, we've got a bunch of questions. So I thought, <laughs> do we just want to kind of jump? Yeah, jump let's go right into, into it. it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there's the there's the there's the sort of I think you know if we were to set the scene, when are we now? It's uh, July twenty third for me in New Zealand. We're a day ahead in the future, right? Yeah. And obviously, COVID is still you know it's exploding uh, still in the states with what appears to be not quite a second wave um talk through what you're seeing doug because you, you're sort of right in the middle of it but hey, you know what what do you, everybody's sort of had this thesis that it's going to change everything about how we get around our cities and uh, but you know what is the data actually starting to show well i mean it's going to change everything about how we get around you know i live in new york i live in brooklyn um and whether we like it or not in good ways or bad it's going to change things transit has taken a terrible hit you know, we're 90% below capacity, basically, compared to where we were pre-COVID levels. The MTA, which runs the New York City subway system, is facing many billions of dollars in deficit. Um, I think it was something like a $4 billion deficit for the 2008 financial crisis, and we're up to like $16 billion already just for these few months of COVID. So that means service cuts. That means, you know, reduced bus schedules, things like that. Um, so that's going to have an effect and whether that means people hop in cars to replace their transit commute or buy an e-bike is going to depend a lot on what our mayor here in New York does or what mayors in other cities that are transit dependent do. Um, I wish I had better news for everybody who is listening that, that New York was doing a lot. It's not. Um, people are there's the institutional level, right? The political level, and then there's the individual level. 
at the individual level, cycling has never been more popular. If you tried to buy a, mm -hmm. if you tried to buy a bike today for any age person, you wouldn't be able to do it without like a four or five week order. Um, service yeah. you know walmart has been complaining that they can't um, they, they don't have any in stock anymore which is crazy yeah i mean I, I actually just went for a ride this afternoon and my regular bike shop there were 12 people lined up outside for service so at the individual level people are biking city bikes seeing record numbers they were right before everything really shut down it's starting to go back up again as things reopen um but traffic's going way up car traffic is going way up and it's like we're just shy of pre-pandemic levels, which is pretty shocking when you consider that very few people who uh, have the ability to, you know, people who have the ability to work from home are still doing it. So offices are still largely closed. Um, so it, it doesn't bode well unless there's like a major intervention at the political level. Yeah, um, certainly. Uh, so, so to give context as well, I'm in New Zealand. We've we kind of had a we've got a lid on uh, COVID and have had uh, for a couple of months now. So we don't have any local transmission. We've got um, anybody who comes into the country has to go into quarantine. So we're effectively at no community transmission. And to be honest, life has pretty much gone back to normal. It's it's like as soon as that happened, our bus patronage is back to normal. Uh, almost exactly, actually, like. Uh, we're, we're back to the same levels we were at before and that, and that's paralleled in other countries so like china for example was almost back to the same level of transit use but your point around car use i think there was an early part of the narrative where people were really excited and saying oh look this is this is great it's going to get people um you know uh, it's going to get people onto the street and wanting to socially distance i think what it actually ends up doing is saying i want to have individual travel that's not transit <laughs> and um i'm going to do this the option that feels safest to me um which for a lot of people was cars. And, uh, and so what you're yeah. seeing is uh, the, the, the sort of, uh, and that's certainly the case in China as well, is that there's been a massive uptick in the amount of congestion just because it's like, well, I want to socially distance myself, but I don't want to be on the road. Um, uh, especially if, so, uh, you know, I think that there's a, there's an interesting, uh, narrative there as well around, um, uh, I think there's a people who, who are coming along and saying, you know, you're trying to change, you're trying to take advantage of this, you know, terrible health crisis and push your own narrative. Um, talk us through what you're seeing in that. Um, you know, yeah. is, is that true? And how does that look? I, I think that is true. I mean, I've certainly seen that reaction to it. You know, um, Justin Davidson, who is a critic for New York Magazine um, and a big fan of open streets and, and bike lanes and, and progressive transportation. The way he put it is that we really shouldn't be talking about using this as an opportunity, but instead seeing it as an obligation. Um, so, you know, if people are uncomfortable taking transit now, I mean, we should also say there isn't a whole lot of evidence of, of spread on transit, like cities like, you know, Hong Kong, Seoul, or are, are, people are back on transit, they're wearing masks. And so long as they're not having face-to-face -face conversations, which most people don't do on transit, um, there isn't much risk, but people will feel uncomfortable, understandably taking transit. There's always that difference between what the facts say and people's feelings. So then we have an obligation to help them figure out another way to get to work that isn't going to screw over everybody else. So if everybody says they don't want to take the subway because it feels uncomfortable and they choose a car, that's going to destroy the economy of the city, the environment, just the quality of life. 
So we have an obligation to say, you know what, here's a safe bike lane that will get you from, you know, where I live in Brooklyn to Midtown Manhattan without you ever really having to put a foot down or worry about interacting with trucks and cars and buses. We have that obligation to keep you safe. I mentioned all the new cyclists who are out there. Well, we have an obligation to make sure they don't get killed, right? Like we have an obligation. Um, and then there are the bigger obligations of things like people are stuffed inside their apartments with nowhere to go. And maybe they live in neighborhoods with not a lot of green space. So you have all these streets that you could shut down to cars and open up to people and give them places to, to play, to ride their bikes, to have catch with their brother and sister because they're home from school. So those are the obligations. I think if we frame things in terms of obligations, then we're starting from a place of what do people need as opposed to saying, oh, we can put a bike lane on that street. And then yes. have people say, well, we don't want a bike lane on our street. It's like, okay, well, what yeah. what do you need? What do you need? It's like, well, we need, maybe we need wider sidewalks because the grocery store has a line down the block and nobody can walk by with a six foot distance. So yeah, I think it's it, if we frame things in terms of obligations, I think that's good. And then to be really long winded, that gets into our obligations to fight climate change and to help people yes. who have lost their jobs and might not be able to afford a metro card to get on the subway. So it gets into bigger obligations. I think that's a better way to put it. Yeah, to your last point. One of my favorite cartoons ever was one that came up in the climate change space and, and it was it had a big oh, yeah, I know this room one. Yep. full of people. Yeah, yeah. And up the front, it's sort of like green jobs, um, you know, bikeable neighborhoods, nice community, all this sort of stuff. And someone's standing up and saying, well, what happens if this wrong? And we did all this crap for nothing, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> which is, you know, it's like, no, of course, you, you, hopefully you're going to get to the same place, which is... Um, I, and that, I think that's part of, uh, that discussion as well as like, well, we should probably be doing a lot of this stuff anyway. Um, right. it, you know, and I think, uh, there was an interesting dynamic that we had here in New Zealand where, um, so there's specific funds that were available from the government as a COVID response, um, during that period that we were in lockdown. And what ended up happening was there were a bunch of bike lanes that were proposed for social distancing. They almost got approved. They were literally about to get approved in a couple, by a couple of councils. And then they got retracted because all of a sudden we went from uh, being kind of under lockdown for COVID to no longer needing it. And all of the proposals were pulled. And so as a result, you know, the, 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 the car lobby uh, who don't generally like bike lanes and don't want their parking removed were like, yes, of course, we didn't need these things anyway in the first place. And, and, and it's like, well, no, we, we do. We actually kind of, these are the, we were doing it in part for, for COVID, but actually we kind of needed them anyway. And we still need right. them. Right. And we, and we need these things too. And they, and they should happen. And look, I think as far as the opportunity piece of it goes, like, you know, my kids usually go away to summer camp uh, every year and they're gone and my, my wife will go visit her family and I usually get a couple of weeks at home alone. And those are the weeks, like the two or three weeks where like I clean out our closets, like last year, like I built a new bookshelf for our living room, you know, and I reorganized. And so I kind of think that like the opportunity piece of it is a little, that's what it is, right? Like people are not commuting, people are not on the roads. So the opportunity is while there are fewer people on the roads, that is when you could be doing a lot of the actual work of reorganizing your city, so to speak. And um, so th that's, I think, from the governmental standpoint, that's the like, let's take advantage of this opportunity piece, um, just from the, the pure fact of doing the work. Um, so, you know, I, I think the comparison I've used elsewhere is like, look, if my 
if there was a fire in my house, right, like that would be a tragedy and hopefully no one would die. But a few weeks later, after I had recovered from the grief of my, you know, like losing my wedding pictures, my wife and I might look at each other and say, you know, we never really liked that bathroom. You know, like we should redo it now. So I, yes. I, I think like that's the other side of how, and I hate to be flippant about this, like I said, like it's a real serious thing, but we should be taking advantage of this moment if we want to do the work. Yeah. Um, there's, there's another part of this as well, which I, you know, I don't know quite to the extent of how it's looked in the US. So I am seeing, for example, Biden's new announcement and the, the, talking about the sort of um, the fact that this is obviously accompanied by a very substantial recession and economic hit and that um, the response is going to be from government. They want to go and spend money on infrastructure, right? Biden's just come out and said he wants to spend, I think it's $2 billion in four years rather than $1.5 trillion um, in 10 years that he had originally proposed he wants to spend $2 trillion in the next four years, mm-hmm. specifically rebuilding uh, infrastructure. We have similar stuff, and I know most countries around the world, as part of the economic response to this, is going to be doing that. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a kind of wider question for you around how are you seeing company or countries um or cities that are trying to rebuild and do new infrastructure um uh, wanting to kind of build infrastructure that actually supports and does not support the car but actually supports sort of like urban living that's nice and conducive to easy facilitation of movement around the city because what i see and 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 a lot of um the arguments being made is just let's build more roads yeah. let's build you know let's get let's the easy the easy argument always is just let's go build more roads the cars need to be able to move around easier and, and it's sort of old thinking how can we ensure that the new stuff that gets announced ends up being conducive to that sort of future that we want to see yeah i mean that is a real risk because historically jobs programs in the united states economic recovery programs in the united states mean build highways um and you know the the highway building lobby is much more powerful than the the bicycle lobby. So, um, I mean, and I think the other issue is that a lot of the stuff that gets built, I mean, granted, there are things like Tiger Grants that go to fund projects at the local level, but much of the decision making about bike lanes or car-free streets or busways um, happens at the local level. So for all of these things to happen, for Biden, you know, hopefully Biden gets elected and then hopefully Congress in a Democratic majority passes a Green New Deal, and then there would be projects like perhaps high-speed rail. Um, You know, we would get funding for the MTA to bail them out of the crisis that they're in right now, for example. And, and, you know, and Caltrans in in the Bay Area um, is facing a major crisis, too. So hopefully they would get rescued. Um, So I think the crisis is probably so big, we won't be talking about, like, what new things can we build, but it might be can we repair the old things that are falling apart? So there's been a lot of focus on, you know, bridges and highways being rebuilt as opposed to building new ones. Um, I'm sure we'll see a lot of that. I think it's going to require a lot of local advocacy. That's the perspective I come at it from. Um, You know, if we're talking about bike lanes, bike parking, bicycle sharing systems, those aren't things that the federal government is really going to concern itself with. Um, So it's going to be on local mayors and city council people and state legislators to lobby for that money for their communities. Yeah, there's a there's a question in here um, which has come through and 
from Jai, which is saying giving huge subsidies for electric cars while the crude is cheap is a really bad way to handle the economy. I, I think there's also a kind of an interesting uh, uh, part in there as well, which is uh, Germany, for example, came out and said, look, we're going to give massive subsidies and almost all the subsidies to, to electric cars. Um, you know, the, the, the car lobby is incredibly effective and in it's, you know, and in, in, in it's... Um, and it's lobbying, and I do think we are likely to see, um, unfortunately, a transition towards electrification. But it'll be through cars. Oh, for sure. Um, and 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 that 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 still requires the same level of infrastructure investment. It still requires the very heavy heavy set kind of demolition of parts of downtown in order to be able to facilitate the movement of cars through the city, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the one, the one part, obviously I'm biased with micromobility. Uh, we, we, we're really excited about the growth of that space. And to your point earlier around, um, people not being able to buy bikes, we've seen sort of, uh, anywhere from a hundred to 300% growth in the sales of e-bikes and, uh, in the shared, uh, kind of scooter space, things are starting to get back to normal. Obviously not fully shared is still kind of a tricky space. Um, because it requires a lot of uh, relationship with the councils, et cetera, who are kind of hesitant around the mm-hmm. public health aspects of being able to release those back out onto the street. But we can certainly see that there's going to be a really big influx in the number of vehicles that are in that smaller space. And so it's, I, I think, you know, to your point, um, nobody wants to lobby for bike lanes. And, and there was uh, David Levitson, who I interviewed on the podcast a little while back, who's a transport planner who's based at University of Sydney, um, said, look, if only bike lanes were $5 million a kilometer, right. you know, like that's, that's what it would take because, um, if you could do that, then you'd have a lot of people wanting to bid for the work and they would be out there advocating for that, for that to happen. Um, and maybe, you know, I, I like to think that maybe the, the, the thing we really need is crazy big bike projects, you know, boondoggle kind of giant bike bridges that you know go between brooklyn and new york if, and that if and only the bike a, a industry could be bridge. as corrupt as the as the car industry <laughs> and the highway industry we'd solve our economic problems no i mean i i often joke on the podcast that like you know this is usually in relation to climate change and how we're going to kind of lick that hopefully that um no venture capitalist, and I know some probably listen to your podcast, is going to fund me with millions and millions of runway money for my brilliant new idea, which is like, don't buy all that much stuff, get the smallest vehicle you can own, and like, and, <laughs> yes. and you know, don't take on heavy debt to leverage yourself away just to get to work. So there is that problem that, you know, e-bikes are not cheap, the, the price is coming down, they're more affordable to people, but like, you know, a $1,600 e-bike is never going to be as attractive to investors as like a $36,000 flying car, right? So um, we do have that that problem in the bike world, in the advocacy world, that a lot of the stuff we're asking for doesn't generate the revenue. Well, it it doesn't generate the revenue in a one-to-one relationship, right? But you put a bike lane on a street and retail sales can go up, right, by like 40%, 60%, depending on the location. So I think we're, we're going to have to start talking about um, the economics of this less in terms of like, can a small group of investors get rich investing in this little product, right, versus like, can a community enrich itself in many different ways by investing in people-centric infrastructure? 
Well, that requires enlightened politics there, Doug. Right. Yes. Yes. uh, That we can get there. Um, I agree. I mean, I think that there's very, you know, one of the pieces of work that I'm doing here is uh, I've been doing uh, a piece of research with what we call the New Zealand Transport Agency, which is the equivalent of the USDOT in in, in the US. And we were looking at, we modeled out what mode shift could look like, because obviously, um, I think the compelling argument to be made to an organization like a DOT is that, look, you're going out and investing to build extra capacity on these roads, which is realistically going to you know, cause this amount of impact on congestion. That impact is really negligible. You might you know, make it a minute faster for a billion dollars. Um, but if you were to go in and build these bike lanes, at the moment, you know, traditionally, there's been sort of a bunch of assumptions around how utilized those bike lanes would be. What we're seeing with electric bikes and scooters, and what the, obviously the reason I'm pretty excited about micromobility, is that we're seeing those vehicles come already. And if you build the safe infrastructure for them, they get utilized more. And what we, um, the, the mode shift that's possible is actually kind of orders of magnitude bigger than what we see with traditional bikes. And so you can solve the problems of congestion far cheaper, far more easily than, you, than it would take to go and build extra road capacity for cars, yes. which we know have in a sort of induction event in Jevons paradox, which is you build the capacity and it ends up just filling up. You know, it's like gas. It fills to... The, you know, it goes to the space that's available. Yeah. You know, it'll just it'll, it'll continue to expand. So, um, we're, we're you know the 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 organisation here in New Zealand is really excited about this idea of saying, look, um, we we now have some solid research on which to base decisions around better infrastructure development for these smaller uh, style vehicles that allow for more movement through the roads. We kind of already had it. You know, you've got a 20 to 1 ROI, as you say, and you get all this data around sort of increase in data in, uh, in, in sales, et cetera, on, on, the, on the roads that you might put on a bike lane on. Um, but being able to say, look, we can, we can materially reduce your need to spend on congestion reduction measures simply by reallocating some road space here, I think is a compelling argument. Yeah, I mean, we have a situation here in New York where the the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, there's a cantilevered section of the expressway in Brooklyn Heights. It's like an old Robert Moses project. It's literally going to collapse. And like, it's, you know, it's it's structurally unsound and needs to be replaced at a cost of something like $2.5 billion for for what amounts to not much more than a mile or two of roadway. And... The the mayor's office and the city DOT put out this plan of just like a complete rebuild. This wouldn't even add capacity, basically. And it was still about two point five billion dollars. And the local community groups and other politicians said, hey, 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 wait a minute. Like this is fossil fuel infrastructure. This is going to cause all kinds of traffic. The project itself would have caused backups into the neighborhoods. Um, Why don't we re-envision it as just a route for uh, for truck traffic so that commerce can still happen, but that private vehicles are, are limited. And there's been various proposals. And yeah, for you know a fraction of that $2.5 billion, you could build a complete network of busways and bike lanes in all five boroughs of New York City. And so I think you know, it's, it's not a done deal. We, we've yet to see what's gonna happen with what the city will choose, but there's a, the, the conversation is shifting and people are starting to get that that return on investment, like you were saying, is is going to be better, you know, yeah, a highway interchange for $22 million, um, like that will shave one minute off of everyone's commute for maybe a year before it gets back to what it was before, um, is not going to be how we're going to get ourselves out of this future, you know, that we're, we're rapidly hurtling towards. 
Yeah. Well, look, hey, um, I, I, there's a couple of questions that I uh, we, we've got coming in, so I, I, I might just sort of intersperse them as we as we chat. Um, I've got one, one here from Jay, which is any observation on temporary disruptive infra uh, infrastructure such as slow streets, bike lanes, free bikes for first responders and essential workers. Um, do you have any, any any thoughts specifically on that? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting here in New York talking about the COVID crisis. Um, so, City Bike, our bike sharing system offered uh, free passes and free memberships to first responders and essential workers. And they got a lot of success with that. But the most interesting thing I thought was that during the crisis, the, they were looking at which stations were getting the most use. And so traditionally, right, it's going to be Grand Central Station, Penn Station, um, where people, major commuter hubs, that shifted during the uh, crisis to hospitals, um, and that mm-hmm. a lot of the hospital workers were taking it. So, um, I, I think like you see how quickly these, these things can shift just by virtue of the, where business was taking place essentially for, to put it in a very basic term, these things change. Mm-hmm. Combining that with giving free membership to people made a huge, huge difference. Um, Oh, did they give free membership to people? They, if you were a first responder, a hospital worker, oh, essential worker, okay. you could get a free membership. Um, I think it started as like a free one month membership and then went up from there as the crisis went yeah. on. And they had a lot of success with it and City Bike became really instrumental. And then the city also, for people who were taking personal bikes, put in bike parking at some of the hospitals and that filled up almost instantly. So. You know, I think that speaks to your earlier point, too, of like the, the quick build nature of this stuff. You can respond very adeptly to um, to anything that comes your way. You know, if, if a hospital located on one side of your city needs a new highway off ramp to get there, you can't build that overnight. But if it needs yes. 100 barking, uh, bike parking stations uh, for a city bike share, then, yeah, you can do that. You can just drop it down and, you know dust your hands off and walk away. Relatively quick. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I interviewed Laura Fox, uh, the head of uh, NYC uh, City Bike by Lyft, uh, yesterday on the podcast, actually. And we are ex- I'm expecting to get that out probably in the next couple of days. Um, so check out that episode. But she made a really interesting point, which is the, the, the cycling is back to 90% of what it was in New York. Yeah. But it's very different use cases. It's not the commutes anymore. It's a lot of that. She also said as well, the most interesting thing was that the the ridership skewed. And um, you now have about 5% more women riding uh, than before, mainly because... The, free, the essential workers skew, uh, six, I think 6% of the workforce is women um, in hospitals. So um, you ended up with sort of a lot more people riding uh, who are definitely different demographics than what yeah. they had traditionally. I, it's funny. I was so. just reading about the 1980 transit strike in New York City, which was it was April 1980. Uh, the TWU, the Transport Workers Union, went on strike. It lasted about 11 days. And it had all of these very quick effects on New York City. So like the population of New York City went up by 500,000 because it was all of these corporate workers and other people staying in hotels or in friends' apartments who would otherwise have been, you know, going to the outer boroughs or elsewhere who needed to stay. But the kind of most famous thing that came out of the transit strike, um, if, if your viewer, your listeners have ever seen uh, Working Girl in 19, the 1988 Melanie Griffith movie, um, it was sneakers, like all of these people who would just get off the train, go right into their office in their nice shoes. Instead, they were walking over the Brooklyn Bridge or walking from the Upper East Side to the financial district. And so a lot of people, especially women, 
switched from their dress shoes to sneakers. And so there's this very iconic image of all these people walking and wearing sneakers. And I feel like these are this disruptive moments where um, things shift just out of necessity and people's own innate ability to adapt and change when they have to. So it feels like directly related to this idea of like the gender shift in bike share use because of just like the ways in which people's needs are different depending on who they are. Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, we uh, I saw something come in from uh, Mike Granoff. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, which is that Revel also offered free use of its electric. Yes, they did. For yeah. Health, for, for healthcare workers for three months in New York. And they seem um, to be, I mean, Revel, it, I see them everywhere. And they're actually, lo- I'm sitting like four blocks from their warehouse. So I'm probably not the best uh, best judge of how often they're being used. But what I have heard is that they're replacing, <laughs> they're replacing a lot of taxi trips because they are used for by people who might not want to bike because it's a little too far to go. And so you might normally take a Lyft or an Uber or a regular taxi. And instead you just pop on one of these things and you go and it's relatively inexpensive and you're there. And also without a lot of traffic on the roads, people probably feel a lot safer. Get it, taking a moped yeah. for the first time. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's certainly, you know, that, that, that the data that we have from, uh, from Horace uh, looking, so he went and pulled all of the data of the different, um, the different specific uh, modes that are shared in San Francisco. So he looked at traditional bike share, scooters. Um, at the time, it wasn't uh, Rebel uh, in in New York. It was uh, sorry in San Francisco. It was Scoot. Uh, jump e-bikes as well and he looked at the distribution of probability of trips and you could see that scooters were predominantly used for those very short trips traditional bike share was used for sort of maybe a little bit longer than a scooter but not that long then you had uh jump e-bikes that were used for sort of and they had a sort of a fatter fatter curve and then the scoot mopeds were sort of like you know the really big long trips up to six seven eight miles and that definitely conforms right yeah. Um, I interviewed Frank uh, Reig, uh, who's the uh, CEO on the po- on the podcast. Um, he was excellent, and and was, you know, the the thing that I love most about the Revel business is that it t- kind of took a lot of the problems that the scooter business had. You know, short lifespan, um, the inability to be able to debt finance a lot of the vehicles, um, the problem around where do you park them, uh, the, the 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 sort of swappable battery and operational aspects. And they kind of have improved it on every metric. And so as a business, I'm really excited about Rebel. I think they're, they're, Yeah, they're I'll also say that because I know for, a lot of the scooter companies sometimes get, would get a bad rap for, you know, dumping stuff all over and then them being scattered all over the sidewalk. From what I've seen here in New York, Revel customer service and the, the responsibility that they feel towards like not um, having any sort of real negative externalities for people who are not using Revel, they take that very seriously and they're very quick to suspend members who abuse privileges. They, you know, they, they talk a lot about responsible parking and where you should leave these things. So I think like it's been interesting to watch that they've learned a lot from the mistakes of other companies and they seem to be doing a pretty good job, which then I think really position them to succeed and do all the things they're doing through this crisis. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, well, look, we've got another question, uh, a couple of questions here. One is um, from Ernest. Does micromobility ultimately depend on a political shift in power in cities from those with money to those with data, a.k.a. Ash, at microurbanism? I don't know microurbanism, but I assume there's somebody on Twitter. Um, any thoughts there, Doug? Um, I mean, I think 
New York, I can only really speak to the New York example, which is that, you know, we had a big shift in commuting habits and the explosion of cycling under Mayor Bloomberg. And he was very famously focused on data. He would, I think, said something to the effect of like, you, you can't govern or measure what you, you know, you can't govern what you can't measure, basically. Um, and so he was very much focused on on metrics, on numbers, on goals. And um, he also had a very singular vision of what the city should look like. And that was manifest in his hiring of Jeanette Sadiq Khan and her very singular vision of what the city should look like. And you saw a lot of success in that in that way. The de Blasio administration is less focused on data, although with Vision Zero, uh, the program to end traffic deaths and serious injuries, obviously data focuses very uh, is very heavy in that regard. But there's been more of a thing with de Blasio where it's more, well, people want their cars or no one's going to bike. He governs with his gut a lot more. And so I think it does speak to the point or the, what the person is asking about, like, which will, which will win out here, data or big money? And I think it's a, probably a combination of both. Um, you know, we, we need to know how people are commuting, what they want. We need to measure political support for such things. And then we need to follow that information as best we can. And I think that, as we've seen in the U.S. at both the New York and the national level, governing with your gut doesn't really work. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, so I, yeah. I uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 there's a, there's one thing in here which is very interesting. So again, as part of this research that I've been doing for 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 the um the transit agents here, the um the big problem that we have, especially in owned micromobility, is no data on usage. So we can't collect mileage collect mileage statistics, for example, on someone's bike usage um, in the same way that we can for cars so a car every time it goes in for a, a warrant or a service or wherever um, the, the the mileage is recorded and so we have a way to track how you know what our uh, the, the sort of VMT is of that of that kind of mode and we we have next to no visibility over the data around personally owned we have understanding about the shared because obviously they've, they've got um back end with the mobility data specification etc for anybody who who operates those shared schemes the big problem that we have at the moment is that gap um for privately owned and and as a result it makes it very challenging to be able to go and and, and invest so I, I do think um to that question about sort of is you know are the ones who are going to win the ones with data potentially but you need to get the data in the first place and that, that how we collect their data is actually kind of problematic at the moment the other point about it as well is um you know the the money side of it which is again if, if these things you know if a bike lane costs five million dollars a kilometer it would be a lot easier to go get a bunch of construction companies to go and vouch and say oh no spend billions of dollars on this thing um because uh you know, because it would make a lot of sense and, and you'd have that flow through uh, so i'm I can see a couple of problems in that in that in that argument. I'd like to think so. The one part that does give me heart is the fact that we're seeing fifty to one hundred percent growth in the in the in the sales yeah. of these vehicles, to the point that in you know uh, famously in New Zealand, I think we're going to sell more e-bikes next year uh, than new cars. Yeah. Um. So just by pure volume, we're going to start winning that argument. It's just a case of. Are people going to see it? Are those vehicles going to end up staying at home or are they going to be out on the street and visible and therefore it's hard to ignore, right? That was the one part about um, 
scooters in general that I think was such an interesting um, break with the past and something like the Segway. The Segway was sort of, you know, uh, lauded as, oh, it's going to be the, the remake of the city. And yet you had kind of one person riding around on it looking like a bit of a moron. <laughs> right, but right. If you have 10,000 people riding around on scooters, it's a lot harder to ignore, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, so, so there's an aspect of it which is just, by the law of large numbers, I think we're going to start winning this. Idea. I mean, that was why I was so excited for City Bike, actually, because I knew anecdotally that cycling was successful in New York City because every time you would put a bike lane in, I would see people on it. I would see the types of people you didn't used to see cycling. You know, you'd see, you know, women in nice clothing going to work or families riding and you'd see all different types of people. But that was just my observation. And you could post as many pictures as you wanted. But if the people in power weren't paying attention, it didn't matter. City Bike comes along and suddenly you have all this data that says like, okay, this station, you know, the bikes are being used nine times a day and this station um, is regularly empty. And, and we were getting all this trip data, you know, 40,000 trips a day, 50,000 trips a day, 90,000 trips a day. And we, we suddenly could get really excited about numbers. Um, I will say DOT here in New York does a pretty good, good job of collecting the information. They're not as good about getting it out there. So there are bike counters at different locations around the city at the East River Bridge crossings, um, other entrances to the Central Business District. And there's only one spot where there's an actual counter that you can ride by and, and see, and that's the Manhattan Bridge. Um, and they release that information, but on a periodic basis. And they need to have that just be open so you can go to any you know city website find it and see a tick up as you're watching. Um, and I, I do think that that will really help. Um, that will help a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. Uh, Jesse asked Brooklyn, Brooklyn for trips that are not uh, to from central business districts that are longer trip distances for or less safe for casual bikers, i.e. Brooklyn to Queens. How do you view ride hail as a substitute for private car ownership if, tra if, if transit ridership continues to struggle? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a good point because a lot of the commutes actually are not from where I live to the Central Business District. There's a lot of people working, you know, in tech jobs in, in Dumbo or in service jobs in Williamsburg or going to Queens. I mean, I think I'm not going to say anything that's revelatory to, to people who listen to your podcast, which is like, it would be kind of a disaster if we all summoned a Lyft or an Uber in the morning to get to our jobs. Now it's, it's great. I don't have to worry about parking. You know, I, I've lived in the city for 22 years and the more they've added things like car sharing and bike sharing, the longer I've been able to put off ever having to think about owning a car, especially as I have two growing kids. Um, but yeah, I mean like if we all hop in one of those to go from Brooklyn to some far off spot in Queens that isn't transit accessible, especially if service cuts happen, um, that's not going to be, that's not going to be so good. Yeah. yeah. I can't speak to, to Brooklyn, um, and, and, and not living in New York, but the one, the one, uh, thing that I, uh, the insight that I got from the conversation from Frank was that Brooklyn, oh, sorry, Queens specifically and Brooklyn where they were deploying the rebel scooters as one of the most underserved areas of New York in terms of traffic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's and hard so to get from where I live to various, like it's easier for me to get to a friend on the Upper West Side than it might be to get to a friend in Williamsburg um, on yeah. the subway. Um, so that's why I would bike that distance, but not everybody's gonna do that. So obviously that's where Revel comes in, that's where Lyft comes in. Um, 
but yeah, so it, it, and commute patterns, I think that will be something that changes through this crisis and afterwards. Like we might not all be heading into lower Manhattan for our office jobs. We might yep. be doing something a little different. Yeah. Totally. And the congestion pricing that they're talking about from New York, is it just onto the island? So it's a little, like the original vision for congestion pricing was that to cross any East River Bridge, which are, the East River Bridges are currently free. The Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge, uh, the Queensboro Bridge, the, the tunnels you have to pay. So that, right, so that results in a lot of toll shopping where people avoid the tunnels and deal with the traffic on the bridges. So the original vision was, okay, toll the bridges and like that will reduce that toll shopping. But the deal that got worked out in Albany was that actually they weren't going to toll the bridges. They were only going to toll if you came into central Manhattan. So I could drive from Brooklyn over the Brooklyn Bridge and immediately get on the FDR Drive, which is the highway on the east side, mm-hmm. um, and not be tolled. But if I went over the Brooklyn Bridge and got off and went to City Hall, which is just over the Brooklyn Bridge, I would be tolled. Yeah. Um, so that that hopefully will happen. It's been delayed um, indefinitely because of the federal government, because of the Corona crisis, um, and we'll see what happens. It was supposed to roll out in 2021, and they were probably, you know, if nothing like what's happening now had happened, we'd all already be talking about how much it was going to cost, where all of the, the cordon was going to be, but we're not having those conversations just yet. It's more, is it going to happen yeah. at all? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, there's a there's a question here about how do we track the personal ownership growth of e-scooters, um, and that's from Ken. Um, Ken, I can probably take this one. Um, at this stage, <laughs> uh, we don't. Uh, to be honest, like I'm I'm trying to track. I'm trying to imbibe as much data as I can. So I've got data points coming in from manufacturers, um, but there isn't really anybody tracking that as a sales figure globally that I've found. And certainly, if anybody has better data on this, please let me know because I'd love to know. Uh, I'd love to be able to share it and talk to that person potentially and invite them, invite them onto the podcast. Um, the challenge that I do see with that personal scooter growth is um, you've got a whole kind of range of um, operators. You've got, you know, it's, and sorry, and dis- manufacturers and distributors, they're kind of the big hitters. So that's like Segway and Okai, um, Acton and, and, and uh, Xiaomi, which is kind of obviously part of Segway. Um, they, you know, they are probably the largest manufacturers um, and they have just started to release their um, their sales figures, uh, Segway has, because uh, it's gone public in China. Um, but they, as far as I understand, it doesn't track unit numbers or it tracks um, revenue. So you have to kind of back tra- you know, back backtrack into that to try and work out what those numbers are. Um, but yeah, the, the the general thing is, I don't, I'm not. You can do it on import numbers into certain countries. That's easier to do. Um, but for, for, for sort of a global sales figure, I don't think we have a kind of clear understanding of what those numbers are at the moment. Um, the other point about it as well is obviously, as I mentioned before, the usage and, and how different cities track that. Oftentimes, um, the bike counters, depending on the technology they use, won't track scooters. So someone can go over on a scooter, but it's calibrate. The way that it works is typically electromagnetic kind of sensors under the ground and the metal component, the metal, um, Componentry and a lot of those scooters isn't high enough. Um, you know, it's not it's not big enough um, metal to be able to be uh, 
kind of calibrated to pick it pick it up as a, as a bike. So it's a little bit tricky. I think there's a sort of uh, an open question there. Um, I know that there are people who are exploring this idea of um, computer vision. So having a bunch of cameras set up because we can now we've now got to the point where we can pretty easily identify between personally owned and shared scooters and people who are on bikes, and people on e-bikes um, through machine learning computer vision stuff um and i think that that solution is going to be quite interesting i think that's probably where we'll end up being able to track that stuff but again that'll be kind of point of use rather than sales so hopefully that's a answer that comes across um well jay um jay has got a question here could cargo e-bikes become more common or preferred alternatives to cars especially suvs i see more than ever I see more than ever on the street. Some are not super expensive, but the best ones are. How to get people into mode shift, e-bike rebate programs, road and inf- road and parking infrastructure, and also who gets it, city, suburbs, or, you know, and, and, and sort of an open question there around equity. Yeah. Thoughts on that? So I always hit on the parking uh, question almost first, anytime a question like that comes up. Um, you know, like we said, e-bike prices are coming down, but cargo e-bikes are still expensive. Now, they're not expensive if you're replacing a car, necessarily. But for a lot of city dwellers who are thinking, do I get a car or do I get an e-bike? It still can be um, a little expensive. It's a, it's a lot of money to lay out. And most New Yorkers are living in places where they have to walk up a flight of stairs or five and uh, theft is a real concern. So they're not going to spend $3,000 on a cargo bike and leave it outside. Some do, but mass adoption is not going to happen until there are secure bike parking facilities all over the city. Um, So I think that has to be part and parcel of a city's plans for changing their streets is offering, you know, covered bike parking uh, to protect from the elements, but also like maybe community groups get, you know, my block association. Why, why isn't there a, a bike locker in a parking spot and I can rent it for $5 a month. And that would be completely worth it to me to protect my my cargo bike. Um, I do think rebates would be a really big thing. You know, we saw Paris, right, offering credits for bike repair and for subsidizing e-bikes. I think that would really help. We, we do subsidize the purchase of electric cars in, in the US for people who don't really need the subsidy. Um, so we should be doing that to shift people to e-bikes. And you know, the, the what we're subsidizing for electric cars could just buy people e-bikes and give them to them for free so right so um yeah i think my big my two big things would be if you want to see that shift in cities like new york chicago boston san francisco it's you've got to focus on parking um my friend shabazz stewart who is the ceo of uni which i know is i think part of the micro mobility network um you know they're working on a big secure bike parking facility they have one up and running in brooklyn and they're hoping to get more of them with residential versions and commercial versions where if you bought that giant electric box feeds you could secure it and store it safely yeah yeah well if you look at um you know if you look at places like amsterdam and copenhagen um you know cities that have been doing this for a long time you know and, and at the end of the day um, they just, they might not be electric, they might not be whatever, but they, but they're just, they've kind of had to solve a lot of these problems in advance that we're, we're going to come up against, right? And it's like, you can point to them and say, this is kind of what the future might look like if, they, if we were to go and support that. The bike parking facilities in those places are amazing. Yeah. 
Um, and and it's really, you know, oh, of course that's probably what we'll end up with. And it's it just comes down to, are people willing to pay, which I think they probably would be. At the moment, we, we oftentimes think about bike parking as, oh, it has to be free. But actually, there, there is a lot of utility in having a secure spot in which you can go and it's, you know, conveniently located and you can go and drive in, right into your, your place and park it and you know that it's not going to be touched while it's in there. That's the same level of service. And I think what, you know, again... This is, I think, what we'll see happen is that as these vehicles get more and more and more capable and we end up with more of them with smartphones on wheels and they've got cameras and they've got their own safety devices and all this sort of stuff, it will not be unreasonable to spend 10 grand on a bike or on a or on some sort of pod side sort of vehicle thing that has a decent amount of assist um, and some sort of potentially some weather protection and then and the safe infrastructure in which to operate it. Of course you would, because it's just the, the best way to get around a city. It kind of looks weird uh, as we think about it today, but it will end up being um, just logical and rational, uh, I, I, I think. Uh, and, and in that regard, the parking thing, I think, will make it a lot easier. Yeah, and I also... I think that's kind of what we need. I mean, I, I also, because I'm, I'm very much focused on the response that you sometimes get when you propose bicycle infrastructure, which is, oh, those cyclists are scofflaws. They, they run through red lights and all that kind of stuff. And, you know... I actually think we're talking about kind of infrastructure influencing behavior in terms of transportation choice, but infrastructure influences uh, the risk we take and the speed at which we travel. And so, you know, many New Yorkers live in apartments where, like I said, you have to walk up five flights of stairs and there's no place to store, even if you could get it up there, a big cargo bike. So if you had secure bike parking, more people would buy them. And that would lead to probably slower riding styles because even with an electric bike, you know, if you've got a big load, you're going to be pretty careful because you go to Amsterdam and those skinny canal apartments, right? They where you have to practically climb a ladder to get to the second floor. Um, they all are riding big, heavy bikes because they have places. Now, theft's a big problem there too, but they generally have secure places to park them where they can either keep their eyes on them or they are in like the massive new bike parking facility in Utrecht, which I was there two summers ago before it opened and nerded out there <laughs> for about a half hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, most people yeah. go to see Rembrandt and, uh, you know, <laughs> ride bikes around and have waffles. I went to see the big new bike parking facility. But I do think that yeah. those things are going to then lead towards people buying safer, slower, sturdier bikes, which will lead to better cycling culture in the states and other places as well yeah except hey look well we're running up against time uh so doug we um there's there's i'm just gonna see if there's anything in here um there's a bunch of people agreeing with us about the e-bikes um the unipod uh people wanting it for multi-dwelling units especially in the bay area and this idea of um uh, RFID based bike block parking makes a, a lot of sense um, and there's one there's some going on in uh, Tel Aviv there um, but look we, we, we should probably uh, end this up and uh, uh, for folks who want to you know given that we'll release this as a podcast um, what's you know for folks who are interested in uh, tracking you down what's the name you know how do they find the War on Cars podcast etc et yeah et so um, the War on Cars we are available wherever you get all the normal podcast services, um, but you can go to thewaroncars.org and click it, uh, click over there and check us out. And we mostly rely on um, Patreon sponsors. We do. We actually have had some mobility companies sponsor us, um, but it's it's generally listener supported, so you can check that out as well. And we, like I said, we have forty six episodes, so it's a good 
good back catalog to listen to uh, for people who are interested. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, yeah, for folks who are interested in the micromobility podcast, obviously it's just the micromobility podcast. Uh, we have we kind of alternate between interviews with Horace uh, talking about the sort of disruptive innovation um, angle to micromobility, uh, but we have also interviewed uh, Frank from uh, Revel and um, others who are in the space thinking about New York. And I will be releasing the episode with Laura Fox, which. If I may say so myself, I think it's one of the best that I've ever done. Um, just because I really, Laura is amazing. She's um, she's such a deep thinker about mobility in cities, and also obviously like operationally, she's running you know ten thousand bikes. She had she had a post on Medium, I think, that I read that broke down all the new data on bike sharing as a result of the COVID crisis. It yeah. was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, she's, she's, it's a great, great conversation. So, um, yeah, look out for that. But anyway, um, thank you very much, everybody, and great to have you on. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate it.